1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. This evening I would like to deliver a message entitled, Delivered from the Wrath to Come. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes these words to the saints at Thessalonica. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you will note there that the Apostle instructs these saints that God has not, with the emphasis on not, appointed us to wrath. What wrath? In the future day of the Lord but that we are to obtain salvation or deliverance by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we think of redemption and salvation, it means deliverance from our sins. We're saved by the blood of Christ and forgiven in Him. But here when the Apostle Paul uses the term salvation, He's using it in the sense of deliverance from the judgment of God to come. You see, we are not the recipients of God's prophetic program. Rather, we are living under the administration of grace. We are grace believers today, saved by Paul's gospel, simply by believing Christ died for our sins and rose again. We now are members of the church, the body of Christ, and therefore a part of God's secret plans and purposes. <coughs> Thus, we are going to be raptured out before that dreaded day of the Lord. Now, I have a twofold purpose in this message this evening. First of all, I want you to have a greater appreciation that you're living in the dispensation of grace. Hopefully you'll have a greater appreciation of the grace of God by the time we are finished this evening. Secondly, I want to challenge you to have a greater burden for lost souls, for your friends and your loved ones, that you might reach them for Christ before it's too late. We don't know how long we have. The Lord could come very soon for his church. And once we are raptured out, then God is going to return to his prophetic program and to the nation Israel. And he's going to raise her up again and begin to channel his blessing through her as he did in prophecy of old. Now having said that, we'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Many, of course, feel that the book of Revelation cannot be understood. And we couldn't disagree more. Why, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, as it says in chapter 1 and verse 1. That is, it's the apocalypse, or the unveiling. And so here, John is giving us the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ regarding his second coming, back to the earth and all of the events that are going to precede his coming. And so I personally believe as we compare scripture with scripture that the book of Revelation can be understood. Now it is true that there are parts of it that will not fully be comprehended until those are coming upon the earth in the future day will live under this period of time. 
part of the revelation of God, and I believe it's God's will for us to have a well-rounded knowledge of his entire word, and that includes this book as well. And here, as we consider the book of Revelation, it is touching on things to come. It is entirely futuristic to our day. So once we are taken out, then what John gives us here is a chronological order of events that are gradually going to unfold in that seven-year tribulation period and kingdom that will follow. In verse 9 we read, I, John, and this is John the Beloved, one of the twelve apostles, who also am your brother and companion in, now here the definite article is in the original, in the tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So here, as John gives his introductory remarks, notice that he said that I am your brother and your companion in the tribulation and kingdom. He is referring to that future time of Jacob's trouble and the millennial kingdom that will follow it. He says, I was in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God. And in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, John, brethren, isn't speaking about Sunday, the first day of the week. That's how this is often interpreted. It has nothing to do whatsoever with Sunday. Rather, here he is referring to the day of the Lord. You see, in the Hebrew language, you can only translate this phrase, day of the Lord. But in the Greek language, which this book was originally written in, you can translate it day of the Lord or Lord's day. And so John is referring to that time when God is going to pour out his wrath and judgment upon this world system. He's going to overthrow the kingdoms of this world and he's going to establish his kingdom of righteousness upon the earth. We believe that's going to be a literal 1,000 year kingdom as taught in the word of God. And notice John was in the spirit on the day of the Lord. He was actually taken from the Isle of Patmos and he was transported to time and as he went through time, he went through time to a future day, two hours. And he saw all of the events of the coming day of the Lord. And he saw some unbelievable things. He could not believe his eyes at times. And you say, well, Pastor, how is it possible for John to be transported through time? All I can say is nothing is impossible with God. Is not he the creator of all things? Did not he speak in the beginning and worlds came into being? Does not he know the end from the beginning because he has planned and purposed all things? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is God. And so here his servant had a vision of all that is going to transpire in the future day of the Lord. Verse 12 of chapter 1. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, 
and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, or lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with the paths with a golden girdle. Who is this one he saw? Why, he identifies him as the Son of Man. That's one of the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that he says, one like unto the Son of Man. Well, was it the Son of Man, or was it the Son of Man? Was it or wasn't it? It has to be one way or the other. Well, indeed, it was the Lord Jesus Christ standing there in the midst of the golden lampstands. But John had never seen him like this. You see, John knew the Lord in his earthly ministry. He knew him as the lowly Jesus who was born in Bethlehem's manger and went about Palestine doing good and healing the sick and raising the dead. He had handled the word of life. But here, when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, he had never seen him in this manner before. He sees him standing in the midst of these golden lampstands as the judge of all the earth. Because you see, that phrase, son of man, is associated with, with the judgeship of Christ. When he is going to come and execute judgment upon his enemies. And notice in verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto brass, fine brass, as if they were burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. John saw one of the most amazing sights he had ever seen in his life. He saw the Son of Man standing there as the righteous judge of the earth. His head and his hairs were white like wool, white as snow, showing that he's going to judge in righteousness. And notice his eyes were as a flame of fire piercing right through the heart and the motives and the intent of the heart. Also, his feet were like unto fine brass. Brass in the scripture is always associated with judgment. He's going to trample his enemies under his feet. And in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Now you'll note some symbolism that is used here. Seven golden candlesticks or lampstands, and we have seven stars. Now many come to portions like this in the book of Revelation, and they say, well, that could never be fully comprehended. But we beg to differ with them. You know, as we study the book of Revelation, even though a great deal of symbolism is used, in other parts of the Word of God, it is explained for us. It's interpreted for us. And let me say this to you. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. I'll give you a lesson in that. Notice the golden candlesticks and the seven stars in the right hand of Christ. Drop down to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, or the messengers, or the pastors, if you please, of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Now that wasn't too hard, was it? So as we put all of this together, John saw a vision of the Son of Man standing in the midst of seven kingdom churches in the future, which are located in Asia. And the seven stars that were in his right hand are the 
of those seven churches. This is the Greek word agalos. It means messenger. Now, obviously, John isn't writing to seven angels in heaven. He's writing to the seven messengers or the seven pastors of the churches that are located in Asia. So these are seven future kingdom churches. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give them a revelation about the events of things to come. That brings us to Revelation chapter 6. In the book of Revelation, there are three major sets of judgments. You have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. As they unfold, each judgment becomes more intense. And then when you move on to the second set of judgment, they become more intense. And the Lord said, by the end of the bold judgments, if those days were not shortened, all flesh will be wiped from the face of the earth. That's how intense it's going to get in the day of the Lord. Here in Revelation chapter 6, we are introduced to the first set of judgments called the sealed judgments. And in verse 2, we read, and I saw, John said, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. So when the first seal is broken, and as it is opened, one of the first things that John sees is a rider on a white horse. Now we must remember we're at the beginning of the tribulation period. Who is this rider on the white horse? Well, isn't it the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't believe at this point in time this is a reference to the judge returning to the earth. That's at the end of the tribulation period when he returns in his second coming. Here at the beginning of the tribulation, the rider on the white horse is none other than the Antichrist himself. If you go back to Genesis chapter 48, and you read that entire chapter, you would learn that the Antichrist is going to come out of the tribe of Dan. And Dan was the rider on the horse whose rider fell backwards. That's a reference to the future Antichrist. And so the first thing that takes place in the tribulation period is the Antichrist is going to step on the stage of the world. Now the reason I say that is because notice he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. No one gives our Lord Jesus Christ a crown. He has the crown. He is the king. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But here we see that a crown is given unto the Antichrist. Authority is given to him by none other than Satan himself. And he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Now we know a great deal about this man of sin. He's going to be a very charismatic figure. He's the beast that rises out of the sea, John says in Revelation chapter 13. Therefore, we know he's going to rise out of the nations, and specifically Syria. He's called the Assyrian, but he's a Jew, for he will not regard the promises of his father, the prophet says. 
Remember, Israel is scattered throughout the nations of the world. And that will be true at the beginning of the tribulation period as well. True, God will begin to gather her back. But she does not fully come into the land until that millennial kingdom. Even today, there's more Jews in New York City than there is in Jerusalem. They're scattered throughout the world. And so the Antichrist will rise from among the nations. And he'll be a Jew. And he'll be single, the prophet says. He'll have no regard for women. He'll be a very wealthy man. A political figure. A military leader. And the world will wonder after the beast. Almost overnight, he will become prominent and a world figure, a world leader. And everyone will follow him and be mesmerized by him. And he'll set up a reign of peace early on in the tribulation period. And he makes a covenant with Israel that they can worship and offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. But then in the middle of the tribulation period, he'll break his word and break the covenant he made with Israel. And he's going to walk into the temple of God and proclaim himself to be the Messiah of Israel. All hell breaks loose after that, as we'll see. Then in verse 3 of chapter 6, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Here, as the second seal is opened, and also the third and the fourth, these are evil riders, angelic beings, a part of Satan's fallen host that are permitted to come to the earth. Now, this also happened back in the days of Egypt. And it's interesting to show the parallel between the plagues of Egypt and the future tribulation period. They're very, very similar. And in Psalm chapter 78, in verse 49, the Lord says that he troubled the Egyptians and Pharaoh with evil angels. And the world in the future is going to be troubled with them as well. And the rider on the red horse who comes to the earth, notice that he takes peace from the earth. So there will be wars and rumors of wars. One nation will be against another nation. It's going to be a very chaotic time. You'll remember during the Persian Gulf War, Desert Storm, how uncomfortable and how uneasy you felt that we were engaged in war and our boys were on foreign soil. That's only the tip of the iceberg as to what's going to come. Peace will be removed from the earth. One nation will war against another nation. A time of unrest lies ahead. Verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. 
And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Here, as the rider on the black horse comes on the scene of the world, it's another evil angel that God allows to come among mankind. And notice he has a pair of balances in his hand. Balances to measure things out. And in verse 6, you will note a measure of wheat for a penny. In the Greek, that's the denarius. And back in biblical times, a denarius was a full day's wages. So what John is saying here is it is going to take a full day's wages to buy a measure of wheat to make The world will be cast into a famine. Not just localized, like we see in Kenya sometimes or in other parts of the world, third world countries. This is going to be worldwide. The scope of these judgments is universal. Everyone is going to be touched by them in some way. A whole day's wages for a loaf of bread. That's inflation. Verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. As the rider on the pale horse comes on the scene, it's none other than the death angel and the angel Hades within his counterpart. And notice power is given over them over a fourth part of the earth. And what that is saying is, is one fourth of the earth's population is going to perish under this fourth seal. And as you study the trumpet judgments which follow, a third part lose their lives. So by the middle of the tribulation period, or shortly thereafter, over half of the world's population has perished. The blood will run like a river in the streets of the world. And we're only halfway through. In verse 9, the fifth seal. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. In that future day of the Lord, those kingdom saints are going to sacrifice their lives. It's going to cost them something to stand for the truth of the word of God. When they stand up and proclaim that Christ is the Messiah of Israel, when they do that publicly, they'll be apprehended and executed on the spot. After all, the Antichrist is proclaiming himself to be the Messiah of Israel. And anyone who claims otherwise 
will lose their life in that day. In verse 12, the sixth seal, And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast with her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Now notice this. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And in verse 16, And said, this is the chief men of the earth, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Those living in that future day will know that all of these judgments are coming from the hand of a holy and a righteous God. And they'll literally cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall off. And this earthquake is so great in the first part of the tribulation period that notice every mountain and every island is moved out of their places. But this is all happening in the first part of the tribulation. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 17 for a moment. Now let's back up to <coughs> verse 16, chapter 16. For time consideration here. Revelation 16, 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. Now we've moved through the tribulation near to the end. The bold judgments. The last set of judgments. The most severe of all. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came into remembrance before God, to give unto her the cup of the wine and the fierceness of his wrath. Now notice, and every island and the mountains were not found. So here's the beginning of the tribulation period, there's a great earthquake. <coughs> And the mountains and the islands are moved off of their foundations, moved to the side, as the earth tremors beneath their feet. But as we move through the dreaded day of the Lord, now near the end, the last set of judgments, there's another great earthquake. But this one is even more intense, so much so that all the great cities of the earth collapse. Can you imagine that? You know, it's hard to even comprehend that. Cities like Tokyo, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, level flat. And it's so great that the islands and the mountains fled away. They perish. They are gone. Billions have lost their lives at this point. But the worst is yet to come. Can it get any worse? It does. Let's get two passages of Scripture. Matthew 24 and Revelation 19. In 
Matthew 24 and verse 27, we have what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. Our Lord has taken his disciples aside, and he's foretelling these futuristic events to them. In verse 27, he says, For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even out unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So Christ is going to return from the eastern gate in Jerusalem. Verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now you remember that that also transpired in the beginning of the tribulation period under the sixth seal. But now it happens a second time at the end of the tribulation, just preceding our Lord's return to the earth. These are the signs of the last days that we read about last night in Acts chapter 2. Where Peter says, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. When the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give her light, it will turn to blood. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens and indeed the earth will be shaken. And those who survive through the time of Jacob's trouble to the end, they will look up and they will see these signs and wonders in heaven above. And they will know that their redemption is drawing now. In fact, I think they will be able to narrow down the second coming of Christ to the earth probably within days. We know, for certainty, it will take place in the fall of the year. We know for certainty that it will take place at night. We know for a certainty that he's returning to Jerusalem, because you'll remember when he ascended, the angel stood there saying to the disciples, Why stand you gazing up here? As you've seen the Lord come, you're going to see him come. And where did he lead from? The Mount of Olives. So he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. He's going to rest his foot there as he fights for Israel. Now here in chapter 24 of Matthew, in verse 29, these are the signs that will precede his coming. And you need to draw a line between verse 29 and verse 30 because apparently there is a short period of time between these signs and the actual return of Christ. You see, they won't know the exact day nor the exact hour of his return. They'll see all of these signs and they know it's near. But apparently life will begin to return to normal, whatever normal is in that future day. And in verse 30, unexpectedly, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all of the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall I suggested it may be the sign of the cross. Whatever it is, all the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of Israel will mourn because of him. Their hearts will sink within them. Because you see, when they look into that eastern sky and see the Lord coming in power and glory, he's not coming as the God of all grace like we know today. He's coming in wrath and judgment to trample his enemies under his feet. And if you don't know him as your personal savior, you're going to be one of his enemies. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven open, 
And behold, a white horse. Here's another white horse. But this is a different horse and a different rider. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, now notice, he doth judge and make war. You see, he's not coming back as the Savior. He's coming back to judge and make war upon the ungodly. No question who this writer is. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself coming in power and glory. And his eyes were the flame of fire. We read that somewhere else, didn't we? And on his head were many crowns. And this is the royal diadem, the kingly crown. It rightfully belongs to him because he is the rightful heir of the throne of David. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now you need to try to picture this in your mind for a moment. As we look at the landscape of the earth, it's devastation everywhere. The great cities of the world are gone. Babylon has perished. The blood is running in the streets. Millions upon millions have lost their lives. And the Antichrist, who has opposed God's people, has amassed an army. And he's marching on Jerusalem to issue one final blow to God's people and to crush Israel once and for all. And so on the earth, as far as the eye can see, all you can see is troops and horses. And they're marching on Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly, the heavens open. And all the inhabitants of the earth look up, and they see a rider on a white horse, who is none other than Christ, coming in power and glory, and as far as the eye can see, all you can see is prophetic saints and angelic beings. What a sight that's going to be. That's enough to make your heart fail within you. Especially if you're an enemy of God. And Christ comes back and he stands on the mount of olives. And all the armies of heaven are waiting in the wings. Because, you see, he's going to do battle alone. He's going to crush his enemies alone. And you'll notice here, in verse 13, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, some say, well, that's his blood-stained garments from Calvary. Oh, I don't think so. We're not talking about the first coming of Christ here. We're not talking about the lowly Jesus who died on Calvary's cross for the sins of his people. That's true. And Israel is grateful. And we too are thankful that Christ died for our sins and shed his blood. But that's not the subject matter here. This is the future day of the Lord. This is the second coming of Christ back to the earth. What then does this refer to? Let's go back to Isaiah 63. And again, it shows you how the scriptures interpret themselves. Isaiah 63. And verse 2. The prophet says, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? 
him that treadeth the wine back. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all of my remnant. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. You see, his garments aren't stained with his blood at Calvary. In that future day of the Lord, it's stained and sprinkled with the blood of his enemies. Because at the valley of the ghetto, he is going to trample his enemies beneath his feet. He is going to speak with the word of his power, and they're going to perish. And it says in the book of Revelation, this is the great battle of Armageddon. And the blood, and I take this literally, the blood will run to the horse's bridle. That's up around here. This is the second coming of Christ to the earth. He'll destroy his enemies, and then he's going to take the saints, the prophetic saints, into the glories of the kingdom. A time of peace and rest and glory awaits them in that coming kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, Ron, but I'm glad I'm saved by the grace of God and delivered from the wrath to come. And I've given you just a little snapshot. There's much, much more. It is an unbelievable time of wrath and judgment that is ahead. But thankfully, we believe the gospel and we're saved. Are you saved tonight? Do you have a knowledge of sins forgiven? Can you confidently say if you were to die tonight, you would step into the presence of a holy and a righteous God? Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I hope so, then you're not saved. Because the true believer knows. We're saved not by what we do, not by works of righteousness we have done, but we're saved according to his mercy. Simply by believing Christ died for your sins and rose again, that's how you're saved. Don't trust in your good works or your religion. You'll perish in your sins if you're trusting in those. Do you know that there's not going to be any Methodist in heaven? There's not going to be any Lutherans in heaven. There's not going to be any Roman Catholics in heaven. There's not going to be any Baptists in heaven. There's not going to be any independent IMCA people in heaven. There's not going to be any Christian missionary lives or Nazarene or Pentecostals in heaven. You know who's going to be in heaven? Believers who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Believe that he died for their sins personally on that cross over 2,000 years ago. They place their faith and confidence in the Savior to not only deliver them from their sins, but from the wrath of God to come. Are you a part of the household of faith? That's the real question. Are you a member of the church, the body of Christ? Because you see, the church, the body of Christ, is the true church. And we beg you to come tonight before it's too late. As long as you're sitting there thinking and breathing, there's hope for you. 
But we're not promised another day of life. You know the old saying, here today, gone tomorrow. There's more truth in that statement than we often realize. You may not be here tomorrow. Death might claim you tonight. Will you be with the Lord? And so we trust you see that we should have a greater appreciation, shouldn't we, brother, that we're living in the dispensation of grace. And secondly, we trust that it will give you a greater burden for lost souls, your family, friends, and acquaintances. Reach them now before it's too late. Otherwise, they're going to go into that period of tribulation. And remember, God's turning back to Israel. The Gentiles won't have nearly the opportunity that we have here. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this time. For these solemn words from thy blessed book. Help us, dear Lord, to have a greater appreciation of grace. And we thank thee from the bottom of our hearts that you have chosen out the church, the body of Christ, from the foundation of the world to be in this period of time a parenthetical period in thy prophetic purposes and that we shall one day be delivered not only from our sins but from the wrath to come and lord give us a burden for those little ones for our mothers and our fathers and our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors that we might reach them for Christ before it's too late. For now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And we'll give thee all the honor and the glory and the praise and adoration. For it's in Christ's precious, precious name we pray. Amen.